I'm Amy from Bruja and welcome to Brew Happy, the podcast that invites you to be part of a conversation. We're looking at how marketing companies and professionals can consider the bigger picture rather than being entirely focused on product, copy and deliverables and all in the time that it takes to brew and enjoy a cup of tea or coffee. So pop the kettle on and we'll get started. Before we dive into social housing's post-war story, I forgot to include the Garden Cities in our last episode, which is a huge oversight, because what started as a concept in Little Old England spread and was taken up by others around the world. So, let me rectify that. Today, Garden Cities are often named thus for their picturesque implications, rather than being founded on the guiding principles of the original movement. Ebenezer Howard worked as a court stenographer in the London courts. Each day that he travelled to and from work will have shown him the horror of London's slums and its urban squalor, and in his evenings and weekends he came up with the idea of the Garden City to change that. It was an idea that combined a vision of slumless and smokeless cities together with social equality. There would be a place for everyone with the town's profits being fed back into support the community. Howe's original drawing looked a lot like a wheel. Central to the plan is the larger city, a population Howard had specified on plan number 7 as 58,000 over an area of 12,000 acres. Ringing the town is a canal which then radiates outwards following the spokes of the main roads. These roads and canals form the connection between the cities and the smaller satellite towns around it, each with their own population of 32,000 over an area of 9,000 acres. Howard's specificity did not stop at people and land. In the areas between the city and towns, he designated space for farms, forests, reservoirs and homes for those who were suffering from epilepsy, waifs and strays, inebriates as well as an asylum. As we travel further out, industries were included and we see brickfields and stone quarries, an agricultural college, as well as a school for the blind. In other plans, we see the inclusion of factories for cycles, boots, and even a well-known life essential, jam. Howard believed very strongly that all of society's individuals could be found a place to be healthy, to feel useful, and also to be safe. His vision came to fruition with the town of Letchworth, where construction started in 1903, with architects Raymond Unwin and Barry Parker laying the city out according to Howard's ideas. The actualisation of this vision was so influential to the new town movement that housing projects throughout the world were built on this guiding principle, with garden cities being built in Australia, Germany, Finland and Egypt. Letchworth is also, just as a side note, the home to the UK's very first roundabout. See, don't you worry, pub quizzes. I'll keep these gems coming. Wonderfully, Howard was able to see his dreams become a reality. After Letchworth, Wellen in Hertfordshire was built in 1920, a full eight years before Howard died. Not many visionaries get to see their ideas and their hopes come to fruition, so it must have been a tremendous pleasure for Howard to see these two garden cities come to life in his own country. As I mentioned earlier, today garden cities are thus in name rather than vision. Christchurch, back in New Zealand, is called a garden city. When I asked Google why, 
The information it returned confirmed my suspicions and illustrated what the term Garden City means today. Actually, hold on, I'll read it to you. Under the title, Is Christchurch Still the Garden City? Blooming right it is. Christchurch Mayor Leanne Dalziel is quoted to have said, If we're going to live up to our reputation as a garden city, then we've got to look a lot better than we do at the moment. Unrestrained nature in the form of weeds does not make for a beautiful environment befitting our country's garden city. Another article I found lays the city's claim to the title at the feet of its vast tracts of parklands, rose and water gardens, and verdant surroundings. I mean, I can attest to the place being pretty, but uh, there's no mention of welcoming all, caring for those in need, and certainly there's no consideration of actively feeding any profits from city-owned industries back into the community. I don't think I'm wrong in thinking that along the way, Howard's vision got lost under a desire for the perfect lawn and matching rose bed. And, uh, and I don't think Christchurch is on its own in getting that one wrong. But in our story, we haven't quite got to the inequities of the house proud of later years. And so I shall get back into it where I left off in the last episode with World War I. As you'll remember, before the First World War, the majority of housing was built by private builders and that the commencement of the war brought a stop to almost all construction. I mean, this makes complete sense when you consider that World War I was the first industrial war the UK had been involved in. The entire country's focus shifted to the war effort and the manufacturing of materials, weapons and goods. Knowing the difficulties of housing that the country was already facing, the government built as many of the wartime factories as they could near to towns and cities, allowing workers to be brought in by bus or train. When that wasn't possible, they built permanent housing close to the factories, as seen at Queen's Ferry in Chester, in Gretna and Eastrig, and with the Wellhall estate in Eltham. These four estates were the first housing developments built by the British government using their own HM Office of Works. After the war, it was again to the private sector that the government looked. Unlike the Victorians, though, it wasn't an option to sit and wait for them to feel the right kind of social feels, and so funding was found to encourage house builders to build in a time when rents and mortgages were falsely low, and of course, skilled workers were expensive because of their rarity. The low rents and mortgage rates were put in place by the government in the succinctly named 1915 Rent and Mortgage Interest War Restriction Act. Extending to six months beyond the end of hostilities, it kept landlords and banks from taking advantage and profiteering from the vulnerabilities of wartime. This was later secured and furthered by a 1918 Act that froze rents and mortgages and interest at the rate that they were charged on Christmas 1918 through to 1921, with only a 10% increase. Where these Acts protected the tenants and homeowner, they did nothing for the viability of working-class house building. To combat this, the government came up with two schemes that would subsidise the building of new houses. The first, in 1918, was superseded by another in 1918. It was this scheme that was so significant as it brought the development of social housing under state control and was left to the newly created Ministry of Health to manage. David Lloyd George brought to the country's highest officer of Prime Minister in 1918, maybe that is a bit theatrical, anyway, made many promises in his speech after the armistice, and one of them was reported as the promise of homes for heroes. 
It was a good promise, one that conjured the impression of well-built, nurturing places so deserved by the UK's returning heroes. And it was a line that made for much better journalism than DLG's actual, somewhat sterile commitment to build habitations fit for the heroes who have won the war. So the press did what the press sometimes does and decided to change the quote, thereby giving it the luster that they deemed it lacked. All of a sudden it had the glamour, and most importantly of all, it was headline material. And so, a promise was made that wouldn't, and couldn't, be entirely filled. There just wasn't the money, and there wasn't the manpower or materials to build those homes for heroes. That isn't to say that they didn't try. The alluringly named report for the committee appointed to consider the questions of building constructions in connection with the provision of dwellings for the working class, catchy, huh, very quickly shortened to the Tudor Walters report, was presented in 1918, setting out their recommended minimum for the design of housing and housing estates. Each house, and there were five designs named A, B, C, D, and you probably guessed E, had a living room, a scullery, a bath, three bedrooms, and with the larger houses D&E having a specific larder. Between 1918 and 1921, houses and housing estates were indeed built, but it wasn't without considerable grumbling from the Treasury, the Ministry of Housing, developers and the architects. With arguments and disagreements from all sides, it sounds an awful lot like that Christmas dinner you just knew you shouldn't have gone to. By 1921, or just after your mother-in-law's deserters arrived, subsidies were removed and, yep, house building slump. Things got a little better by 1923, Grandad apologised, which meant that the money came back, and so therefore, so did the builders. The initial burst of enthusiasm slowed in the later 1920s and continued its decline in the 1930s. Space and money reared their prohibitive heads again, and the 1924 Wheatley Act that set in motion 15 years of building with the aim of lowering rents resulted in the houses being built that were considerably smaller than their 1919 predecessors. Councils widened their housing focus to slum clearing, and although they aimed to rehouse those living in the slums into the new houses built, it didn't quite work out as planned. The inner city redevelopment were limited to small areas, and the majority of the building happened on the fringes of cities. The newly unhoused tenants had to choose whether to stay in housing equal in state to the ones they'd just been evicted from to stay close to work in the community, or contend with the long travel times and social isolation of these new fringe estates. As was with the First World War, the start of World War II brought a halt to any housing development, and the end of the war left England and Wales needing 750,000 new homes. An initial stopgap approach was to introduce prefab housing, and by June of 45, the prefabs were already up. Factories previously making aeroplanes were instead building sections of houses, complete with bathrooms and kitchens. Previously, concrete hadn't been a viable option when building houses, and now technology had caught up. Steel-reinforced concrete panels were either bolted together on site or constructed using a steel frame. The speed and efficiency that this provided allowed the construction of 1.5 million houses in the 10 years after the war. In spite of all those new houses, though, UK was still in trouble. 
Slum areas were still widespread, and although they had been earmarked for clearing and redevelopment, it just hadn't happened. This meant that people were still living in conditions that should have been simply unhabitable. Wartime bombing had laid waste to tracts of city land which many saw ripe for development, and so it was into this landscape that architects, planners and designers stepped in to offer a different concept, a modern concept. Vertical living became a logical and achievable way of providing the quantity of houses at a high quality, and it would also make use of the spaces in cities that had come from the slum clearing and bombing. Streets in the Sky was a concept of Swiss-French architect Lacour Bozier, whose architectural style as well as his sartorial choices were copied around the world. The building that started the brutalist movement of architecture was the Unité d'Habitation in Marseille. It was, as Corbusier described it, a vertical garden city. See, I told you how it was influential. Wide, pedestrian streets ran down the centre of the Unité, flanked by restaurants and shops, and provided social focus for the residents. Along with bread and a place to sleep, what Corbusier provided was, as he described it, space, light and order. The Brutalist movement is actually named after the French term for raw concrete, béton brut, which actually happened to be Corbusier's favourite building material. For British architects Jack Lynn and Ivan Smith, this concept was what they needed for their project in Sheffield. Park Hill transplanted the terraced housing communities into new vertical living towers. The old street names were used to name each of the levels of the towers, and the planners made great effort to keep neighbours by neighbours so that the connections and social networks were maintained. Taking from Corbusier's central street, the Park Hill houses were fronted by wide decks, much like that of a ship, so that there was space to stop for a chat and let the mailman past, or for the milkman to be able to continue his rounds, cart and all. In spite of its idealistic conception, Park Hill was deemed a failed experiment. For some of the residents that moved in, this new way of living was just too different. There was an increase in suicides, families suffered from the lack of easily accessible play space for their children, and many of the tenants requested to be moved to low-level housing. And so, towards the end of the early 2000s, the complex was emptied out and taken over by a developer. It was, essentially, ahead of its time. Today, Park Hill has been reopened and this time round has been successful enough to warrant a phase two, which will be ready in the middle of next year if you are looking for a place to live in Sheffield. Councils were encouraged to embrace multi-storey building and, in order to speed up the process of slum clearing and reducing the housing shortage, local authorities returned to prefabricated housing materials that had worked so well previously. Conservative Prime Minister Howard Macmillan encouraged the adoption of this style of building, and even offered subsidies to local authorities who built beyond four storeys. The more floors, the more money they got. Macmillan, when he came to office in 1951, pledged to build 800,000 homes in the first three years, and by the end of 1954 he was only 5,000 short. When looking at those kinds of numbers on the page, it was a remarkable feat. But, as we all know, speed and cost-cutting isn't something that work well together. Macmillan's housing officer called it industrial building, factories churning out stackable wall panels that sandwiched the floor between them, and it was at Roman Point where this all went wrong. It was, as architect Sam Webb described, a tower built like a house of cards. Completed in the late 60s, 
and only a month after the residents had moved in, a gas explosion on the 18th floor blew the load-bearing external walls out of one corner, toppling the flats above onto the flats below. The disaster killed four people and left 17 others severely injured. After the explosion, and as a result of the inquiry into it, tower blocks lost their appeal for many. So if building up isn't everything they'd hoped for, why not go back to building out? The Thamesmead estate on the outskirts of London is an example of this. Designed as a sprawling, self-contained new town, it was a futuristic mix of multi-storey and high-rise buildings, housing 90,000 people with a boating lake and open green spaces. It promised to be a safer, better place to live. The only thing was, things didn't get off to a great start. In order to have enough land to build what they wanted to, the land they chose was marshy and prone to flooding, and it was flanked by the first and second largest sewage works in Europe. Their other neighbours were hardly any better, with two power stations pumping fumes so foul into the air that the planners agreed not to build higher than 60 metres. Regardless of those not trifling hurdles, many who arrived to live in Thamesmead loved it. The original plan was to put in place another river crossing so that the residents could reach London with more ease, but that didn't happen, and those that didn't love the estate felt isolated from the rest of the world. This isolation was caused by the fact that many of the new towns and estates built in the post-war era struggled to find land large enough to house the population they were building for, and so, very often, were only able to find land on the periphery of larger cities, as was the case with Thamesmead. This meant that in their early stages, they weren't connected with adequate bus services. Houses were often finished, and yet residents would arrive to find that their houses were surrounded by unfinished roads and footpaths without schools, shops or other amenities that offered community structure and focus. If you are wondering what Thamesmead looks like, again, apart from googling and visiting, A Clockwork Orange was filmed there. If you look up the scene where the droogs are walking past the lake, you'll get a good idea. Having had this flurry of building after the end of the Second World War, councils and local authorities shifted their focus from building new houses to maintaining the stock that they already had. This was, as it has ever been, an expensive game, and the right-to-buy scheme under Thatcher's Conservative government was a defining moment for both councils and homeowners. In one foul swoop, it lowered councils' maintenance bills, and more people across the UK were able to own their own home. Over the 10 years since the scheme was introduced, one million council houses were sold. The thing is, the majority of these sold were houses rather than flats, and that dramatically impacted the number of council houses available to families. Today, well, as I'm sure you're well aware, things aren't much better. In fact, we have a dearth of suitable council and social housing, and what is available is saddled with huge wait lists. The financial burden on councils and landlords to keep their old stock maintained and up to a decent standard is vast. In the aftermath of the Grenfell tragedy, the reality of what it would take to bring towers even just up to code is scary. And we are now in a kind of stalemate with landlords and local authorities arguing about whose fault it is and who's going to foot the gargantuan bill for fixing it. From the research that I've been doing over the last few weeks, the theme that seems to reoccur is that people do want to do the right thing. That desire is what drives the building of estates, new towns and tower blocks, as well as the innovation and design that we've seen from garden city ideal through to streets in the sky. 
People do care for other people. It's just that the promises they make are undermined by the perceived need for expediency and profit. Or, if it's not even profit, then savings. And it occurs to me that the reason the individuals and families, the people within the system, fall foul is that speed and money are more readily measurable, quantifiably manageable against the qualitative experiences of the tenants. I think there is the greatest possibility that we can swing the balance of priorities and put the qualitative alongside the quantitative. And once we've done that, we will have found a balance between the needs of society and bottom lines. So, now that we have the historic foundations laid, next week we're going to look at the language that's used when talking about and marketing social housing and see if we can track the changes. Thanks for spending time, guys. As always, if you have any comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me on podcast at bruhamarketing.com. We have a rough transcript of this episode on the podcast page of our website, bruhamarketing.com backslash podcast. And you'll also find links to articles and other interesting bits and pieces that I found while writing the series, should you like to read a little more into the subject. And so, on that, I shall leave you to the rest of your day, and I look forward to sharing a cuppa with you next time. Till then, have fun.